I grew up in the late 70s in rural China. During the final years of my country's pursuit of absolute equality and expense of liberty, at that time everybody had a job, but everyone was struggling. In the early 80s, my dad was an electrician, and my mom worked two shifts in the local hospital. But still, we didn't have enough food, and our living conditions were dismal. We were undoubtedly equal. We were equally poor. The state owned everything. We own nothing. The story I'm going to share with you is about my struggles of overcoming adversity with my resilience, grit, and sheer determination. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that to you. <laughs> instead, instead, I'm going to tell you.、Uh, talk about today is、uh, about a new form of collective poverty that many of us don't recognize. And urgently need to be understood. This week, Global Impact headed back to Hong Kong, where we caught up with a friend of mine, Jennifer Ju Scott. What you just heard was the opening of her widely acclaimed 2019 TED Talk on why you should get paid for your data. It has generated well over 1.3 million views, and of course, a big reason why is that it's a subject all of us need to be concerned about. So please stick around, as I put the question to Jennifer on whether we can start making money from our data now. Recently, I told you that with Global Impact, we take a step back and try to look at the world with a wider lens, step back a bit from breaking headlines and numbing statistics, and try to make sense of what is going on around us. Well, Jennifer was one of the first people who came to mind, ideally suited for that task. She first appeared on my radar screen at the World Economic Forum two years ago. It was there that, well, with her in-depth knowledge of cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology, she debated on one side of her a Nobel Prize winner, and on the other a central bank governor on the topic of crypto assets. In 2018, Forbes named her as one of the world's top 50 women in tech. She's also an advisory council member of Fortune's most powerful woman in the world. Jennifer studied applied mathematics at Sichuan University, earned an MBA in finance at Manchester Business School. She went to Yale University to complete the public policy and leadership program, and also at Harvard Kennedy School. Now, one of my favorite HBO series,、uh, some of you may know, is Silicon Valley, and Jennifer served as a consultant to seasons five and six, and we'll be talking about that as well. Jennifer lives in Hong Kong and is the founding principal of Radiant Partners, a private direct investment firm for family owners focusing on artificial intelligence. Okay, Jennifer. Well, welcome to Global Impact. Very, very excited to have you, and thank you for taking、uh, time out of your very busy schedule to do this with us. Thank you, Michael.、Uh, it's my pleasure to be on your show. Thank you so much for having me. So, how are things going for you?、Uh, we're several weeks into the COVID nineteen pandemic, and <laughs> most of us have been in like very intense lockdowns. And I know you've had a bit of a different situation in Kong, in Hong Kong, perhaps not as intense lockdowns. But how has it been for you, and how have you been coping? 
So in terms of um, uh, controlling the outbreak, Hong Kong actually has done a great job. Uh, as you know, we're a few weeks ahead of the uh, time curve in terms of where we are. Um, so Hong Kong hasn't had the local case uh, for more than a month, except yesterday there were, the day before yesterday, there were two new cases locally, but largely mm -hmm. speaking, uh, the local outbreak, community outbreak has been under control for quite a long time now. So Hong Kong is in process of reopening, but everybody's still wearing masks and every building you go in, you have to have your temperature tested and um, um, everywhere, um, you know, from shops to on street and taxis, uh, hand sanitizer is available for free. So mm -hmm. um, I think after SARS, similar to South Korea, after MERS for South Korea and, and SARS in Hong Kong, people just have very different level of uh, public awareness what every individual has to do in order to overcome, you know, pandemic or mm -hmm. epidemic. And as someone who embraces technology to the degree you do, it must have been an easy transition working from home and connecting with people uh, virtually. Yeah, I feel guiltily um, uh, comfortable in this situation. You know, um, the reason I say guiltily, I, I'm very aware there are a lot of people, um, they cannot bring their work home. They just have to physically be at their workplace, um, which is, you know, I know it's a privilege uh, for my work. Um, but at the same time, I also think, um, you know, for a lot, a lot of large organizations for years, we've been talking about digitalization. Uh, COVID-19 really accelerated the food digitalization. Um, I actually personally find working from home quite uh, efficient, you know, to, to start with Zoom meeting uh, significantly reduced my small talk when you have to <laughs> meet right. people in person. Um, and, um, and also, you know, all the commute, et cetera. So now I'm actually starting to go back to office. Um, but only when I have uh, physical meetings in town or in the office. Uh, otherwise, I actually choose to work from home, uh, mm -hmm. spend half of time. So, so I think this trend is gonna, you know, pers you know, um, uh, persist um, after the pandemic. Um, also, if for any organization, they're spending a large amount of lump sum every month on office rental right. during COVID. If they haven't seen productivity significantly reduce. Um, I think, you know, it's um, no brainer for them to start to facilitate uh, this kind of, um, you know, working environment. In fact, I think Twitter, Goldman Sachs, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera already announced that, that if you don't want to come to office, you don't ever need to come to office, right? I think that's kind of healthy. Yeah, and let's remind people Hong Kong has some of the most expensive real estate in the world too, so. Could yeah, I think in Hong Kong though, there's another uh, problem that um, for a lot of people, you know, their living space is so small, so they don't necessarily have uh, an office per se in, you know, in at our home. So I was talking to um, a quite large um, property developer in Hong Kong recently, mm -hmm. and she was saying, um, you know, they might have to lose some of the office uh, rental. But when they start to develop residential now, they start to think about, okay, which space we can actually design that as a home office. Or if you don't have enough space for home office, what about, you know, in the residential building, you know, mm -hmm. uh, should we start to build shared, you know, business office area in the residential area? So it's quite an interesting shift. Yeah, interesting. Well, I know what you're talking about. I When I lived in Hong Kong, I had pretty good remuneration, but 
the flat I lived in above Happy, Happy Valley, I could touch the two walls from my bedside, but um, <laughs> <laughs> the work got done yeah. nonetheless. Yeah. Um, now I'm going to post a link uh, with this podcast to your amazing TED Talk. Um, it, I looked it up and it's had more than 1.3 million views. So I think in the TED world, you are a rock star. <laughs> and let's Thank remind you. people that you spoke about the topic of uh, why you should get paid for your data. So um, I know a lot of people are interested in this topic who are listening. And can you talk a little bit about that is how one might donate or destroy or sell your data? And I'm sure many people are wondering, are there ways we can do that now? Or do we have to wait quite some time before we can manage our data in the way you described? Thank you so much for plugging my TED talk. You know, the, the, my my TED talk has launched. You know, couldn't be a worse timing when you know launched in February, where everybody in the world just wants to focus on COVID nineteen. So I'm very grateful for having one point three million uh, viewers by you know today. Um, so. I think for our generation, um, including myself, we went into social media without realizing uh, what we, we were giving away, uh, had no idea what, you know, the impact. Um, my first um, realization was really, you know, when I started to really dislike Facebook content, um, I felt I couldn't care less about, you know, what people have breakfast and also all the vanity post is, was really, you know, mentally quite unhealthy for especially the youth. But then in 2017, uh, when Cambridge Analytica saga started to expose, and I realized that, hang on a second, you know, not only just this is unhealthy and, us, you know, occupying a lot of our time, but our privacy is being taken away for profit and being used for uh, really dismantling the democracy. So I think, you know, I started to think about you know, in the digital, if we call this, you know, Google, Facebook, large tech companies, mm -hmm. our digital economy 1.0, the data obviously has been tremendously valuable, but the benefit of, um, you know, you know, data and also the ability to to use data has been extremely concentrated, right? You know, if we, if we look at the global digital uh, advertising market, that's a few hundred billion US dollar size of market. Um, but that basically shared by four or five companies in the world. And uh, as individual, you know, if you think about um, traditionally, you know, in traditional media world where uh, a billboard will, you know, get paid, the TV station will get paid, right? If you host a radio show, you will get paid for, you know, all this mm -hmm. advertisement. Um, but in, Today, you know, the most valuable billboard is actually your phone. We look at our, our home screen a few hundred times a day. Yep. Um, and uh, it is our network when we share information and pictures within our friends and families. It is our content, um, it is our attention, and it is our data. And, uh, and yet, you know, um, the, all the economic value starts, you know, uh, only going to one direction, right? So this is a... Uh, very problematic, you know, not only mm -hmm. just because of the economic issue, but also because of um, the potential uh, danger for a society where you have over concentration of data. And especially when the technology develops in a way based on your personal data, a lot of your behavior, many of the behavior that you yourself are not aware of, um, a government or a you know, tech company will be able to know and predict. Um, I don't think that's a, a good uh, recipe for 
um, for a good society going forward for our next mm -hmm. generation. Mm -hmm. And I have two young girls and um, I, um, you know, a couple of years ago, they started to wanting to have a smartphone. So for me to think about, okay, do I be completely draconian and don't give them a smartphone and pretend the digital world doesn't exist? Or do I just give them, you know, smartphone and without uh, helping them to understand how to be smart, responsible digital citizen. So I try to explain to them, you know, you know how the data is used, repurposed, and my kids and most people around me, they don't understand. And, but when I start to talk about, you know, your data actually worth something, you know, there's the economic value and everybody gets that. So I hope that, you know, to, to raise the awareness of the economic value of individual data could be a Trojan horse for people to, you know, care more about what they share, right? And mm -hmm. don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to be ideological. I think, you know, one part in my TED talk, I also, I also try to um, bring out the nuance, right? Because mm -hmm. um, I'm not trying to say, you know, a little bit like GDPR uh, posture that, you know, privacy is uh, human rights and everybody should have privacy. But especially, you know, we're going through pandemic, there are tens of millions of people out of the job. And if they can use their data to exchange a few hundred dollars a month um, income, and that can you know, put food on the table, I don't think anybody should make value judgment in terms of uh, what trade-off they want to make, right? And um, everybody has different uh, priorities. And in, in Europe, people, you know, um, have can afford to care about privacy but in china there are a lot of um, you know sme um, entrepreneurs or small business owners they they have a hard time to apply you know 500 us dollar 1000 us dollar loans but using their data they can change that loan very quickly um you know then they can prioritize right and so i think you know by mm -hmm. By recognizing that economic value, actually give people this trade-off, and the trade-off is the freedom that you know we should pursue in the digital future. So you feel that's fascinating. You feel we are actually at that point now where people can actually trade their data for for money for monetary uh, exchange. Yeah, it's already started, right? And yeah. um, I think it's a huge challenge, but. Um, I also feel that, you know, given Cambridge Analytica, given the complete mm -hmm. collapse of um, public trust, especially towards Facebook, um, I think if we, we don't try to make some change in terms of um, uh, this over concentration of data ownership, uh, we will never be able to, right? So there are individual projects uh, popping out uh, everywhere in the world. So after my TED talk, I probably received a few hundred um, emails, you know, from everywhere in the world, people talking about uh, what they are trying to do in terms mm -hmm. of, um, uh, you know, uh, make some, you know, changes in this space. Um, I also mentioned a couple of companies in my TED talk, you know, how how people started to, um, you know, recognize this um, this uh, economic value of the individual data. Um, uh, I my, myself also, um, you know, I'm building a Android app that will allow people who view and share digital ads will be able to get paid uh, with real money, right? So um, I think there are a lot of, um, you know, initiatives that start to pop out. And if you think about 20 years ago, um, Google was more or less irrelevant and now how indispensable it is to everybody's yes. life. Um, 
I think it, it would be a little bit, you know, defeatist or naive to say that this is the status quo. Nobody can change, right? You know, somewhere, someone probably creating something um, that will become, you know, the norm in 10, 15, mm -hmm. 20 years time. Okay. So I think, you know, there's a need for digital economy 2.0 that really care about people, right? And especially, I think, post-pandemic um, AI acceleration, you will become even more real. Um, you know, in the more inclusive AI, AI requires data. In the more inclusive, inclusive AI, I think, to recognize that individual contribution of data is uh, crucial. Yeah, okay. And, you know, um, I, I think as you pointed out, I mean, technology in some regards and platforms have got a bad rap um, up until now. Uh, I know that I've been doing a lot of research for my book on smartphone addiction, and I've been studying a lot of apps that are intentionally very, very addictive, especially for children. But do you think um, the role technology has played during this pandemic is kind of the great connector? I mean, you and I have probably mastered Zoom during the pandemic for the first time, but that it, it shows people that the positive role technology can play in our lives. Absolutely. I think, you know, nobody's saying tech is all bad, right? But uh, like all tools, you know, depends on how you use it. You know, it could be positive and it could be negative. Um, the problem with uh, the digital economy 1.0 with the uh, let's take Facebook as example, right? I think, you know, to me personally, what Google offers at least is quite useful for me, quite valuable for me, right? Um, um, you know, but, you know, for Facebook, um, it manipulates your vanity, you know, your insecurity, social insecurity, a lot of very unhealthy stuff. And then, you know, manipulate our dopamine, right? So yeah. I'm a Twitter addict and Twitter to me is very important because it's my news aggregator I learn a lot at the follow and you know access yep, some here. of the brightest <laughs> minds <laughs> yeah with Twitter friends right yeah so I think you know I, I think you know I, I can access to some of the brightest minds in the world um, that's very very powerful but at the same time I also find this is how our dopamine works, right? You you know, once you once you see there's a notification that gives you a little bit of satisfaction, you just keep wanting for more. So during pandemic, I started to do something, um, just kind of personal experiment that, you know, dopamine, the effect is long-term, but also short-term, right? So usually before I wake up in the morning, I will turn on my phone and straight away look at Twitter, what, what happened in this mm -hmm. world, right? And um, so during the lockdown, I stopped doing that. And every morning, uh, I don't even switch on my phone. And um, I just get up and, you know, 5.30, o'clock and read a physical book. And um, for the rest of the day, I found myself didn't feel as strong needs um, as usual to, to go on Twitter and to check what happened. Mm -hmm. And... Um, uh, but if I start my day checking Twitter and the rest of the day, I keep wanting, you know, to go back and see what else happened. And, and, you know, unfortunately, you know, everything, we're, we're a biological creature, right? You know, there's a biological roots to this, which is much more powerful than uh, we realize. So I do think that, um, you know, to your point that, you know, how do we leverage the positive side of technology? Um, in the meantime, also be aware of uh, the potential danger is very important, especially for young kids. 
Yeah, you raise a good point. I, I think it was in my last uh, podcast where I raised the concept of looking at um, your smartphone or looking at your Twitter feed in the same way we look at taking a calorie hit, you know, that one should practice digital hygiene or news hygiene. So you're, you're right. Don't do it the first thing in the morning. And especially at night, I'm advising people not to go online and, uh, uh, you know, really get that hit from, from the smartphone that, you know, like eating food, if you eat too many calories, it can be bad for you. So I think the same thing here too. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think, you know, right now I'm going through my, uh, Twitter detox and I'm probably haven't been on Twitter for, um 10 days i guess and wow. um <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah but you know like i i can't right now i can go on twitter and just listen and watch what everybody has to say without feeling the urge of uh, i have to say something right. as well right? right and i think you know it's important that you can um you can use the technology and platform to express yourself or you know to observe or listen and learn but at the same time you you also should train yourself to be able to you know feel detached from from that right i'm training mm -hmm. myself to to be able to kind of feel detached a little bit at the moment sometimes it's a struggle but i think mm -hmm. it's important fantastic and kind of um staying on this theme of technology being beneficial for society ai uh, which you're an expert in i'm wondering because we are in the middle of a pandemic a global pandemic um do you think we can expect ai to play a bigger role in future pandemics and i'm thinking vaccine development uh, contact tracing even predicting uh, future pandemics rapid diagnosing what's what's your take on that yeah i definitely think so um i think you know in terms of the general business um uh, especially from traditional industry um you know it's very hard to ignore the the economic impact after pandemic to every single country in this world and a lot of traditional uh, industries the after pandemic you know when they start to recover they will have to consider you know their uh efficiency their accuracy their business model etc ai is a very good tool for pretty much all business to start to consider and, um, you know, think about how to adapt that in order to make their business more efficient or even come up with a new business model. But um, specifically, I think, you know, uh, uh, in health is, um, is very interesting to watch that, you know, how China used uh, technology, you know, this including uh, AI, big data, IoT, et cetera, to, to come back um, COVID-19 and, and also I think, you know, post COVID-19, uh, how this episode will actually accelerate uh, China's, uh, uh, you know, digital health um, transformation. So uh, in China, in terms of, um, uh, in Wuhan, for example, mm -hmm. um, you know, there, there were a lot of patients and uh, for patients who already have, um, uh, you know, symptoms um, or slightly later stage to be able to identify, you know, how um, their lung infection, the level of lung infection is very crucial. So with CT scan, you know, there are so many, it's impossible for mm -hmm. the limited, you know, uh, medical staff to manually look through the CT scan. So this is a company called Shukun 
Shukun technologies that basically used a CTA image-based intelligence diagnosis system um, for, you know, designed for heart disease, but in COVID-19 also repurposed for uh, diagnosed for lung condition for COVID-19 um, patients in Wuhan. Um, so that was uh, hugely uh, helpful for the medical staff. And um, also, you know, um, if you look at China, China is a very big country with, um, you know, 1.4 billion people that a lot of them don't really have access to, you know, the top hospitals in large cities. Right. Um, so um, also during pandemic, you know, the uh, uh, inpatient visits in hospital dropped, right? Because people don't want to go to hospital, you have higher chance. So another company called Ding Xiangyuan, so DXY, Ding Xiangyuan, uh, especially online uh, consultation and um, as the hospital physical visit drop, uh, Ding Xiangyuan has, um, you know, from Chinese Chinese New Year uh, onwards, just mm -hmm. uh, going, you know, up in multiple times. And and so I think, you know, in terms of, um, you know, using AI and using uh, genomic, genomics, using uh, IoT and big data, et cetera, those are the uh, technology often they, you know, they use in, in conjunction with supporting each other. And, um, uh, has really, you know, become very crucial part of infrastructure, uh, allow China to come back to COVID very quickly. So if, if you think about, you know, I think China is a good example to think about because China is kind of extreme in terms of digitalization. Um, uh, if we think about, you know, digital health as an infrastructure, in China, there are already um, 800 million internet users, which is the largest population in the world in, in terms of access to internet. And um, uh, on average, you know, uh, Chinese netizens spend 24, uh, 28 hours per week um, you know, online. And also um, the online payment system is already there, right? So if you have a reimbursement from insurance or from government or, you know, for uh, any medical use, the infrastructure is there as well. Um, so so with given those kind of infrastructure, I think um, the efficiency achieved using AI, IoT, big data, uh, you know, online payment, et cetera, um, during COVID-19 in China, uh, out of necessity, is here to stay and to be accelerated. So I think, you know, post-COVID, uh, we probably will see mm -hmm. China, um, you know, moving towards this, uh, you know, rapid transformation of uh, digital health, a little bit like in 2003 when e-commerce took off and then or in 2013, 2014, when online payment take off. And I think, you know, digital health is the is the next uh, big transformation mm -hmm. in China. Wow. Uh, well, I know uh, the investor Jim Rogers is a big fan of Global Impact. He's probably furiously taking notes right now on <laughs> some of the companies you mentioned. <laughs> I know he was on your show, right? Yes, yes. Um, yes. But yeah, you know what you mentioned about the hospitals in China and the role of AI. I mean, that would really be useful in Russia because there are similar problems. You have mass expenses of land. Um, a lot of hospitals have been closed down and the actual hosp hospitals have become hotspots for COVID-19. So if people can stay away and be, you know, treated, treated or diagnosed remotely, so much the better. Yeah. And also, you know, another thing to think about, you know, China, China is, um, um, China has a lot of problems in terms of healthcare, right? Traditionally, mm. um, healthcare, 
the investment to healthcare has been disproportionately focused on large hospitals in you know top hospitals in large cities and um, as you know very well that 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 leaves out you know uh, probably 90% of population to really directly benefit from that uh, investment so um, with the size of population china does not have, have enough education institutions to, to create enough doctors and building up hospitals and clinics to take care of mm -hmm. all the potential patients. So there's a real need for China to kind of take out, you know, to shorten this value chain um, and uh, be able to move from the medical service uh, products and uh, consultation, et cetera, provider to, uh, to the patients, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, let's say, you know, drugs and medical device and medical services, et cetera, traditionally, um, it has to go through so many layers of distributors from regional level, you know, Northeast China, West China, South China, to provincial level, to, you know, Sichuan, Guangdong, mm -hmm. and to city level, right? And then you have all these different hospitals between public, private, and then different, you know, pharmacies. In China, the pharmacies chains um, are about 130,000 pharmacies chains, right? So if you think about even the cost add up, you know, before reach out to the patients uh, in between, that's already very unsustainable. But if, if you know, if we can use, um, uh, you know, riding on this momentum, really, you know, go from directly, um, you know, drugs, medical service and medical uh, devices can directly go to the patients and, um, and then overlay that with an online insurance, uh, online reimbursement, online diagnosing, et cetera. Uh, that's a very powerful transformation and that will benefit the grassroots, um, uh, you know, population. Mm -hmm. And if you look at all the largest technology companies that come out of being, you know, from China in the last 20 years, Every single one of them was successful was because they empowered the grassroots. So I think I see this as a huge opportunity coming up in China. Mm -hmm. In one of your uh, the pieces you sent me, um, you talked about China's currency, the renminbi, or renminbi being digitalized. And uh, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, because I, I, I was fascinated by something you said is that perhaps it could be used by the central authorities to send money, for example, to their own citizens um, as a form of poverty alleviation. Perhaps it could be used to uh, send inter uh, overseas aid to recipients, maybe even, um, well, this is my thinking, perhaps it could also help them support their Belt and Road Initiative. But uh, how do you feel about that uh, uh, digitalization of the RMP? Is it uh, going to happen? And how do you see it beneficial? Yeah, I actually said, um, I started writing about digital RMB in 2018, probably, you know, one of the first ones called that PBOC will issue uh, digital RMB. I think this is just a matter of time. Mm -hmm. um, the, the reason uh, this is a priority for uh, PBOC, um, there are two folds of, uh, you know, main, mainly two folds of reasons. One is domestic, one is international. Domestically, as you mentioned, that uh, China still have 60 million people living under poverty. A lot of them, you know, spread out in uh, very rural areas in China, um, in the mountain area, etc. It's hard to reach. Um, it's not because the central government doesn't have enough money to 
to send aids, but over the years, you know, if you rely on the local government execution, so a lot of those aids actually are sent by the you know corrupt local you know government official. It's so with off, yeah. yeah, so with digital RMB, um, you know, the central government can can basically just give um, every family a phone and be able to send directly send digital RMB to their wallet and. Um, and in this way, the government can also monitor in terms of, um, you know, how much is actually used for, you know, by fertilizer or, you know, um, for their agriculture productions and um, how much they use for buy food and et cetera, be able to analyze, you know, what will be uh, the most needed, right? And so this is a very real need and uh, President Xi Jinping really takes um, you know, completely, uh, complete elimination of poverty in China as a very important part of its legacy. Mm -hmm. So I think this part, the, the, the motivation um, to achieve this is very real. Um, then internationally, China has been trying for many years to internationalize RMB, but right. it's very hard right. to reconcile the competing needs between uh, capital control and internationalize your currency. And China has been trying to convince a lot of uh, developing countries to use RMB as part of the reserve currency. But how could you, you know, how could you convince people to use reserve current currency if it's not float, right? Mm -hmm. So with digital RMB, you know, essentially it's programmable money, and um, you could program, you know, which part of the money that's um, that's flowed to, uh, you know, overseas. And um, as you mentioned, you know, you could. Uh, the government can send, you know, aids, replace the current aids and loans to um, build and grow countries and um, use DGRMB. And then a lot of um, infrastructure projects that also happened, you know, contract to the Chinese companies to do, um, you know, uh, uh, to, to, to build in, this, uh, in those countries. Um, so they could use DGRMB to pay. So in this way, I think, um, in fact, um, will allow this kind of bilateral trade between mm -hmm. China and, and those countries to uh, remove themselves out of the U.S. dollar zone. Um, now, I think, you know, it's very important to realize that um, nobody, till today, nobody can really replace U.S. dollar, US dollar yet, right? U.S. Mm -hmm. dollar still is the, you know, preferred currency. And in fact, I think there's nobody can really threat U.S. dollar um, apart from U.S. government themselves. Um, you know, with the various sanctions, if uh, the U.S. government uh, keep weaponizing uh, sanctions, um, that will start to become a risk that a lot of corporates have to start to consider. And um, I don't, I still don't think there is one single, um, you know, challengers will be able to completely replace U.S. dollar, mm -hmm. but the more the U.S. government weaponize san sanction, the more um, international or organization will be motivated to consider alternative. And I think DGRMB, you know, will become one of the alternatives. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, we all, many of us know who follow this, that how much the USD has become a major tool of U.S. foreign policy. And um, even WHO has, uh, I believe, complained about the difficulty during this pandemic of getting aid, um, of getting PPE and stuff to Iran because of sanctions. So this is something yeah. that uh, is gonna be of a lot of interest uh, going forward. 
I think so. I think you know it's a it's a tremendous power um, to to control basically the global trade artery. Um, you know, using your currency, but that tremendous power also come with tremendous responsibility. You know, are you using your power fairly? Um, and and I think you know if if countries um, start to or companies start to feel um, not necessarily and or they feel this is the risk that they don't need to expose to right that so they will start to think about alternative I think you know real Tinto I might be wrong I, I remember it's real Tinto mm -hmm. um, issued and uh, their bonding RMB and it's one of the first uh, you know foreign uh, organizations uh, large companies issue bonding RMB and um, you know you we will start to see a similar situation in Europe using euro etc right so um, I do think this is a I hope the U.S. government will be able to see, um, you know, it's it is very uh, big temptation to weaponize sanctions, but at the same time, you know, when you weaponize the sanctions, that there will be, you know, um, consequence that other people see see these kind of gestures as a, as kind of risk, right? And whenever there's a risk, it's every executive, every board um, responsibility to mitigate that risk. Mm -hmm. Okay. Look, I could probably talk to you for hours, but <laughs> I'm going to um, ask you one more um, kind of technical question, then a couple of fun questions to wrap up if I can. <laughs> sure. Um, uh, in your um, very well-received um, World Economic Forum appearance, um, you talked a lot about cryptocurrencies, and I believe if my numbers are right, there are about a thousand different types of so-called crypto assets worth about 400 and sorry, 540 billion combined. Uh, Bitcoin, of course, is uh, one, one of the ones most familiar to, to our listeners. And uh, I've noticed looking at charts that it's rebounded quite a bit in value after going down. Do you think Bitcoin could become a leading currency or asset, um, taking into account what you said two years ago? Right. I think, you know, it, it will be hard for Bitcoin alone to become a currency per mm -hmm. se, right? Because the scalability is not there. You know, it's too slow. Um, but, you know, Bitcoin is already an asset, um, a digital asset that, you know, uh, I treat Bitcoin as a you know, digital asset in my own portfolio. Um, and um, I think, you know, um, uh, Bitcoin itself, without additional uh, support in terms of you know uh, scalability, for example, Lightning is a company that's specifically working on uh, scaling, increasing the efficiency and speed of uh, a Bitcoin um, as kind of a supplement applications um, that could help Bitcoin to become currency. But essentially, I think I see Bitcoin as a kind of um, uh, alternative asset that mm -hmm. um, uh, that could you know take a small uh, percentage of your portfolio um, because it, it, it is quite unique uh, right and um, I don't really uh, think you know the the rest of them uh, uh, cryptocurrencies necessarily have um, uh, a very promising future. I think, you know, majority of them probably going to die or, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's just, it's just difficult. Right. And I think, you know, also, um, uh, Libra is another good example. Um, 
I think, you know, Libra probably will have a hard time to really launch um, in any country, any sovereign country mm-hmm. uh, with their original design, right? The way Libra probably will, will be able to launch is uh, perhaps similar to WeChat Pay. You basically still associate with um, existing uh, financial infrastructure instead of, um, you know, your own uh, so-called digital currency. Um, I see the most impactful uh, application um, coming out of this um, uh, movement is, is ironically digital RMB, you know, coming mm-hmm. from very decentralized uh, ideology, um, actually being adapted by a highly, highly centralized um, institution. Fascinating stuff. Um, Jennifer, part of your coolness factor, I think, <laughs> other than your <laughs> great TED talk, is that you got to work as a consultant for one of my favorite HBO series, Silicon Valley. Um, I was going to play a clip from Silicon Valley, but it was frankly difficult to find a clip where the F-bomb wasn't used. But anyway, it's a very <laughs> funny program. If you haven't seen it, anybody go watch it. But tell us about your role in this series and do you have any special memories or anecdotes maybe interacting with the cast oh i i love this gig you know it's Mm -hmm. uh, the most fun uh and in many ways is you know very challenging uh as well uh it really started with um um (laughs) i don't have time to watch tv show and my Mm -hmm. husband um told me one day you have to watch silicon valley uh when the first season came out he said this is this show was uh basically written for you. You, you will love the show. Mm-hmm. And I watched the show and I felt quite cocky about it because I was like, you know, Hollywood never got technology right. This show is so anchored, you know, completely accurate in terms of um, the technical part, who's behind this. And I happened to be a friend um, of uh, the president of um, Motion Picture Association in Asia at that time. Mm-hmm. So he knew the producer and he introduced me to the producer. So I've been kind of unofficially giving them a lot of feedback and advice and just out of same as you just love the show. And uh, when uh, in season five, you know, um, the show started to discuss Bitcoin and um, uh, they basically reached out to me and asked me to, you know, come aboard officially to help them. And then season six, of course, it's all about, um, you know, decentralization, data ownership, you know, internet, Mm -hmm for the people, by the people, of the people. And um, that's kind of similar to what I was talking about in, in the TED talk as well. So um, the process is really fascinating. You know, the, the writing team will send me um, some kind of, um, uh, not even a plot, basically just questions like, okay, with this technology, what would be, you know, what type of um, applications um, and what kind of applications will be most hilarious, right? Mm-hmm. So it's one thing that you understand technology and it's not another thing you will think about, okay, it's technologically possible and it also makes sense and it's, it's kind of plausible scenario given the characters but you have to come up with some kind of funny applications Um, Mm -hmm. and then I will send a package back and say okay here are some thoughts and and then they will come back and say okay what if this character did this Um, you know what do you think and I sometimes will send back and say no that doesn't make sense because Mm -hmm. you know if if Pied Piper is focused on this and you should do that. And, and, and then I don't hear from them until I see the show. So often I don't even know 
um, what's what's the actual plot. So so it's um, um, it's very rewarding to when I actually finally watched the show and I was scream, oh, that's from me, <laughs> and. Uh, um, and and also it's really uh, it goes to show just how much effort uh, you know going behind the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes I feel like I spend hours to just come up with one scenario and it show up in the show uh, for like thirty seconds, right? <laughs> um, so so you know there's a lot of people uh, they hire a lot of people um, like the if you go if you slow you know uh, motion play the credits the mm-hmm. end credit you can see. Uh, the number of consultants uh, like yeah. myself um, that the show hired to just make sure you know all sorts of aspects of the tech is accurate wow. um, is really it's really a very amazing process you know um, I really miss the show and it's very sad it's finished um, but perhaps I think your audience will will like this the, mm-hmm. so every actor um, in the show uh, the main actor in the show are all stand-up comedians except Zach Woods, who played Jared, you know, uh, mm-hmm. kind of Richard's very loyal COO. And um, so Zach is, uh, Zach improvised, you know, the difference between comedian, stand-up comedian, and improvised and stand-up comedians, they, they write the jokes before they go on the stage. Mm-hmm. And then they would basically just deliver what they've already written, right? So for Zach, improvise, just whatever, you know, come to his head, and um, so sometimes the writers will spend a lot of time and they think they've, they've written something very smart and then Zach will come to the set and it will just go on five paragraphs. That's better than anybody have written. And um, he's a, the guy's a genius. And somewhere, you know, I, I hope sometime um, the producers will release, you know, the the raw footages of uh, oh, you know Zach's. <laughs> that would be amazing. So his method, he's... Uh, his method is basically his understanding of uh, Jared's role is that he thinks Jared's very maternal to Richard. So whenever he's on the set, Zach would channel how his mother talking to him and mm-hmm. using that kind of tone and voice to talk to Richard. So it works. <laughs> he works very well. Yeah, he was a very believable character too. Um, yeah. There was um, one of my favorite scenes is, um, actually, I think he was born in mainline China. Jin Yang is his character name. <laughs> Yeah. When he's interviewed by a Bloomberg anchor and uh, speak spoke in a not very flattering way about the uh, one of his colleagues. I'm Emily Chang. This is Bloomberg Technology from San Francisco. In a moment, we'll be talking to Techonomy CEO David Kirkpatrick about the social media phenomenon sweeping the vegan meat industry. But first, we have seafood founder and CEO Jin Yang. Sorry, Mr. Jin, Mr. Yang. It's a Mr. Jin Yang. Okay. Uh, Mr. Jin Yang, you just sold your company, Seafood, to Periscope, and we're hearing the deal closed at over 15 million. Can you confirm? I am a very rich. My sources at Periscope tell me the tech is quite impressive, and your app uses the same machine learning to recognize if a food is a hot dog? And a not hot dog. It's a very important. It's a hot dog, not hot dog. It's technology. Excited to see it in the App Store. I'm told it's releasing today. For free? Because uh, I'm rich. Speaking of, I understand investor Ehrlich Bachman left the company just before the Periscope sale. Care to comment on this? Uh, yes. Eric is a stupid investor 
He has no money, now he's uh, poor. Okay, thanks so much for stopping by. Yeah, uh, Eric is a poor, sad man, and uh, he's uh, very fat. You know, it's, uh, Eric, uh, do you speak Mandarin? Yi Eric is a pangzi. That uh, it means a fat ass in uh, Chinese. Uh, and uh, he's a liar. He's, a, he's a, just a con man, and he lies to everyone. Eric Bachman is a lie in uh, person. We appreciate your candor. Jin Yang, founder of Seafood, thanks for stopping by. I'm Emily Chang. This is Bloomberg. So. Yeah, there's another story. Um, I will be very quick on this story, but basically, mm -hmm. um, before I joined the show as um, uh, officially as a consultant, um, I was complaining to Jonathan Doten, who's the tech producer of the show. I said, you know, you have to include China. China is such an important part mm -hmm. of the tech story, you know, to, you know, today and. And then there came Jing Yang. I'm like, no, that's not what I meant. You have to have a China <laughs> in the store. They're like, this is a comic show. What do you expect? You know. So um, if you remember, I think from season three or season four, you know, Alibaba uh, uh, appeared in the you know uh, opening credit as yes. well. So. I was actually in Beijing at the MPA event, and so the uh, the tech producer uh, Jonathan Doten and I were chatting. And my friend, who's uh, uh, quite senior in Alibaba, also came to the dinner. And he walked towards me and said, "Hey, Jen, how's it going?" And then he's uh, American Chinese, and you know, of course, working for Alibaba, of course, he's seen the show. So this was mm -hmm. before. Uh, th this was right after Jin Yan became part of the show. I said. Hey, you know, what do you think? Um, what do you think of the, uh, you know, representation of, uh, you know, China's tech industry uh, on the show Silicon Valley? And my friend just went off like, this is not, you know, how China tech is, and this. And after he went off like for ten minutes, I said. Brian, please meet the tech producer of Silicon Valley. So he still hate me today. So, <laughs> so that ended up became collaboration between Alibaba and the show. So it was, it's really quite fun. Yeah. Um, I will forever miss this. I bet, I bet. Well, well done, well done. Thank um, you. Jennifer, to kind of end off, um, I'm wondering if you have a message for women in technology. In other words, for women contemplating going into the tech sector, as you know, they've been historically very underrepresented. things are improving. Uh, I, I think often they're not encouraged to go into technology, but what would your message be for young women considering a career in technology? I think um, this is a great question. Thank you so much for asking. It's mm -hmm. a very important question. Um, I think for women and girls, uh, first of all, you know, there's no question about women and girls, can they do STEM, can they do math, can they do technology? This has been proven over and over again. Um, if you read history, we will know the very word computer was actually, uh, first meaning of computer was basically an occupation often, uh, um, you know, uh, held by women who, mm -hmm. Who were good at numbers and calculating train schedules um, uh, even you know uh, in NASA most of those mathematicians are women and um, so there's no question about if women can do STEM or math etc that's a that's a myth that's to say women cannot do this but I think you know the most important thing is that for um, women and girls um, 
you, everybody in this world need to use some sort of leverage to get where you are. And if gender is one of the ways to get where you are, use it. But then once you get there, you need to forget about your gender. I think, you know, girls and women need to just be really good at what you do, not become, oh, she's a really amazing woman in mm -hmm. certain area, right? So when I go to um, conferences and uh, when, if they ask me to be on the panel of women in AI, women in blockchain, women in, you know, uh, X, I would uh, always ask them, do you have a panel for men as well? Mm -hmm. You know, do you want to ask men, right? So I think, I think, you know, you need to, you need to really just treat yourself as an, an individual who can do X really well and happen to be a female, right? right? And um, instead of, um, you know, kind of define yourself with your gender, because men never need to do that. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so to, to get yourself out of that frame, uh, step one is to perhaps forget about your agenda first, just focus on your merits. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, I know a lot of advice I give out to uh, people, well, not even going into technology, but in any, any uh, career choices to build your network and very importantly, have good mentors around you as well. Could really uh, yeah, for sure. get a lot of for robots sure. out of the way. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And often I, I hate to say this, but it's a, it's true that women are not very kind to each other. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think, that. you know, one, <laughs> yeah, totally. And uh, I've experienced that. I, I, I have uh, seen that and um, it's not pretty. And I think, you know, that perhaps, I don't know exactly why, but that perhaps coming from you know, before, you know, the possible position for women so scarce, right? So everybody have to kind of compete, you know, um, for that limited space. But now there are a lot of organizations make deliberate effort to increase the number of female, um, you know, in their board, mm -hmm. in their leadership position, um, in their, you know, uh, conferences and speakers, etc. So I think, you know, when that, when it's, it's not, you know, scarce anymore, I think, you know, um, apart from what I just said in terms of forget about your gender, I think another thing women have to do is to make deliberate effort to support each other mm -hmm. and, um, and then ask nothing in return, but to ask people who receive your favor to pay that favor forward to women who have talent and integrity. And mm -hmm. I think that's, that's collectively, that's the way, you know, women um, as, um, as a group will be able to advance. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for all those positive messages. It was one of the reasons why I was so excited to have you on the program, because I knew you would give a lot of positive messaging to, to young people, to women, um, to a lot of people who don't know um, what to do career-wise right now. So I really, really thank you for your time. And uh, also stay safe and continue yeah, what you're doing. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. And I want, I want to thank you as well. I think, you know, you, you're based in Singapore. I mean, Hong Kong, you're Canadian and uh, Chinese. And I think uh, we don't need to describe it. We all know this world is um, falling apart a little bit. Mm -hmm. And um, there are many wars around the world. And, um, you know, get to the point that people, um, families and friends can talk to each other, can disagree with each other thoughtfully. So I want to commend you for your effort to, you know, build bridges uh, with such diverse voices 
um, as well. Um, I think it's very important uh, to 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 help and support this kind of very divided uh, society we're all facing right now. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for those very kind words. They mean a lot to me. Take care. <laughs> thank you. You too. Well, our heartfelt thanks to Jennifer for that amazing discussion. On the podcast website, we'll be posting the link to her full TED Talk. Now, remember, there are several ways you can support Global Impact, which, after all, is a listener-supported podcast. You can give it a five-star rating on Apple or any other quality platform where you receive your podcasts. You can subscribe, and you can help support the program financially by clicking on the Donate tab. We also wanted to thank Squarespace, the website building people, for their indirect support of Global Impact. And to Rosewood Estates Winery in Beamsville, Ontario. Honest wine, innovative mead, local honey. You can find them at rosewoodwine.com. Now remember, out there, there are uh, a lot of people who are uh, in pain, isolated, there's a lot of grieving going on, and loneliness. In the um, discussion today, we talked a lot about the benefits of technology. Well, use that device, that those platforms in front of you right now to reach out to someone who may just need to hear a friendly, supportive voice. Remember, you can make their day. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Michael Bosacu. Until we meet again, bye-bye. Thank you.